I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. 20,000. That's the estimated number of people who will experience homelessness in San Francisco at some point this year. That's according to the latest point-in-time count, or what's better known as the pit count. Because of the pandemic, it's been three years since San Francisco has had an accurate count of the city's homeless population. Normally, the tally takes place every other year, where people experiencing homelessness are counted for a snapshot in time. This year's one-night tally in February counted more than 7,700 individuals. But that 20,000 estimate for the entire year shows the larger scope of San Francisco's homelessness crisis. As bad as those numbers sound, the latest pick count report shows that San Francisco has actually made its most significant progress in 17 years. Compared to the last count in 2019, the pit count reveals a 15% decrease in unsheltered homelessness and a 3.5% decline in total homelessness. The progress can be attributed to some of the city's initiatives. Those include increasing the number of shelter beds, using hotels as temporary housing, and creating safe parking and tent sites. The question, though, is... How sustainable is this progress? One city might have a better strategy than San Francisco. Fixing Our City is the Chronicle's new podcast series from SF Next, a solutions-oriented initiative out of the Chronicle newsroom. Today on Fifth Emission, we're featuring an episode of Fixing Our City that looks at how the city of Houston has gotten people off the streets and directly into permanent housing. What's Houston doing that San Francisco isn't? If you like what you hear, follow Fixing Our City on the same platform you listen to Fifth Emission. New episodes come out on Tuesday mornings. Here's Laura Wenis, the host of the Chronicles podcast, Fixing Our City. When we first started this podcast, a ton of people told us, go take a look at Houston. That city had just been featured in the New York Times for how it housed thousands of people living on the streets. So we did. Here's what folks there say is Houston's secret sauce. The level of collaboration we have here is really not one that I've seen when I've talked to people from other cities. Communication, coordination, everyone rowing in the same direction. In Houston, a nonprofit organization called the Coalition for the Homeless acts as a clearinghouse for assessing the needs of people living on the streets and where funding should go to help them. Houston also prioritized one strategy, to get people who are chronically on the streets directly into permanent housing. And it got the various public and private agencies to buy in. Since 2011, Houston has seen a 62% decrease in the number of people considered homeless in its biennial snapshot counts. In San Francisco, a Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing directs strategy and contracts with numerous nonprofits to deliver a variety of services. San Francisco has actually housed a similar number of people to Houston in the last decade. But local biennial counts have shown a 20% increase in homelessness. This week, we'll talk about the Houston strategy and how San Francisco compares. Service providers say we have a lot of wrinkles to smooth out in our local bureaucracy and need agreement about what the focus should be before we can really say everyone's rowing in the same direction. San Francisco's lead agency on homelessness says it has been working on a unified plan. We worked very hard to start the process just as Houston has done, and then COVID hit, and that really changed the trajectory of the department's work. I'm Laura Wenis. From the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, this is Fixing Our City. 
I'm headed out onto the street from the Tenderloin shelter run by an organization called Hospitality House. I'm with Joe Wilson, who slept in the shelter decades ago. Now he's the executive director. So when I slept in Hospitality House's shelter, you know, we've rehabbed the building. These are the same stairs. Ah. Um, approaching 40 years ago. That experience and the work that he does now puts him in a position to assess how well our system works from the ground up. We've all had personal experience with oppression. And so my promise to myself is that I'm not going to do that to other people. I may do a lot of other crazy shit, but I'm not doing the bad stuff that happened to me, to other people. He says the systems we have that are supposed to help homeless people don't work that way right now. And I think that would require a level of honesty and self-reflection that doesn't exist just yet. His organization has a success story that required his staff to all work toward one clear goal, and sometimes against the whims of the bureaucratic system. Here's what I mean. During the pandemic, congregate shelters where lots of people stayed in one big room became an outbreak hazard. So the city started putting especially vulnerable people in hotels. They became known as shelter-in-place hotels. Hospitality House ran one of them, but eventually these were all slated to close. Nobody in the city wanted to send residents back out onto the streets. But city data shows only 45% of shelter-in-place hotel residents overall went to housing from those hotels. It's unclear how many of the rest went back to the street. Some went to shelters, some to jail, some to hospitals, some we just don't know. 49 people died. Hospitality House managed to find housing placements for almost 90% of its 110 hotel residents. Staff say they built connections and trust with those they were hoping to house, refusing to give up on finding them a place to live if they didn't immediately conform to the system. Program manager Alicia Coleman says the main strategy was treating people like people. We just like kind of like put the humanity back into human services and took away the numbers and replaced it with people's faces and their names and got to know them as individuals and what their needs were and what kind of care it would take for them to not only help us help them, for, but for them to eventually help themselves. Jesus Seja, a case manager with Hospitality House, described his approach basically as unrelenting communication with residents. If they're having a bad day, I'll come by later the next day and check up on them. Hey, how's it going? But the main thing was me coming to work and understanding, like, the system's probably been failing them. They've been homeless probably 5, 10, 15, 20 plus years, and nobody's probably helping them. Nobody's willing to help them, or if they did, they probably gave up on them. So my goal was never to give up on them. It also took quite a bit of negotiating and making a case to the city that certain clients should get allocated one of the placements available, which required common agreement among hospitality house staff that permanent housing was the right solution. And, oh, having that housing available in the first place, a big deal in this ultra-expensive city. And that was helped along by new resources allocated by the city, state, and federal governments during the pandemic. I heard about all of these as key parts of Houston's method, too. That strategy has won them nationwide attention. It's housed an estimated 25,000 people in about 10 years. San Francisco says in about nine years, the city has housed 17,500 households. Multiply by an average of 1.5 people per household and you get more than 26,000 people. Here's a puzzling disconnect between the two cities. 
Remember I said that those biennial snapshot counts of homeless people went down in Houston and up in San Francisco? Both cities do still have people living on the street. How can that be when tens of thousands of people have been housed? We don't have a definitive answer. Houston's experts say it's probably that more people become homeless than get housed, so there's a sort of churn. People are constantly losing their housing because they lose a job, get evicted, have a health problem, or other reasons. This is why experts say prevention is so important and why a lack of affordable housing is a major factor in homelessness. It could also have something to do with overall population changes or people cycling through the system or coming in from somewhere else. But specific numbers aside... At least one federal official has praised Houston as a model. So let's look at what they're doing over there. I've broken down what they told me into what I see as its three main components. First, they needed a unified plan, according to Mark Eichenbaum. He is special assistant to the mayor of Houston for homelessness initiatives. Houston was formerly the opposite of a model city. Well, I think you got to go back uh, to 2011 when Houston had the sixth largest homeless population in the country. And in fact, we were named a priority city by HUD, which is not a good term. The mayor at the time grew frustrated that the city was spending tens of millions of dollars a year on homelessness and only had anecdotes to show for it. It was time to rethink everything. And that's when Coalition for the Homeless and a bunch of other agencies worked with the mayor at the time and did a three-day community charrette and over 400 people came together. And, and from that, you know, we said, hey, let's use data-proven best practices and let's also do, you know, an unheard of, unprecedented level of collaboration. Houston's Coalition for the Homeless took the role of air traffic control. Anna Rausch is the coalition's vice president of program operations. She says having one organization coordinate everything made things fall into place. I know collaboration is a word that's used a lot, but there really is no other word. It, it really, I mean, the level of collaboration we have here is really not one that I've seen when I've talked to people from other cities. So, for example, not a lot of places can pick up the phone and call a local housing authority and get information on someone whose voucher application was turned in. And we're trying to just see how much longer it's going to take. It's just unheard of. And back in 2012, it was unheard of here, but it's not unheard of anymore. She says this approach shifted the dynamic among service providers from competition for funding to working together to each take on a portion of the work. In the old days, they would just post a request for proposal or they'll post a funding notification that says we have X amount of dollars and so agencies can apply. And so our partners would all apply and get funded for things that may not have been what the community needed or the system needed. With this system approach, what we do is we collaborate with our housing partners. We collaborate with our funders. We participate in their house in their action planning process. So we provide narrative. They reach out to us and say, what does the community need? And so instead of them putting out funding for just whatever, we go to them, we work together and say, okay, it looks like we're going to need about 1,100 units of permanent supportive housing. That's what happened back in 2012. We said we needed 2,500 units or slots of permanent supportive housing in order to really make a dent. Not everybody was totally on board with this from the get-go. Mark Eichenbaum, who works for the Houston mayor's office, is the first to admit that. Some organizations were kicking and screaming and wrote letters to the editors. But some of those organizations are now singing the gospel the loudest. And the reason why, we didn't do this for punitive reasons, the reason why is that homelessness is such a major issue that we cannot afford to be rowing in different directions. 
In San Francisco, the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing oversees a lot of the services for homeless people. Some resources are still managed through the health or human services departments, but most things you'd associate with homelessness run through this department. I asked its director, Shireen McSpadden, for her reaction to the Houston approach and whether San Francisco is similarly coordinated or not. I think the Houston story is really exciting. Um, Ten years ago, they realized they needed to really think differently about ending homelessness. And they brought a bunch of partners together and were able, over time, to build the partnerships and collaboration needed to make really measurable impact. And that's essentially what every, you know, every municipality needs to do. And it's something that we have definitely started. McSpadden's department hasn't existed for a decade. It was created in 2016, partly to streamline the bureaucracy and service delivery that had previously been spread across departments. So there was a lot of great work that was happening before then. But that was really needed to kind of bring all of the resources into one place and kind of start to align the goals. And so that happened. And we worked very hard to start the process just as Houston has done. And then COVID hit. And that really changed the trajectory of the department's work. It was good and bad. We learned a lot of things from it, but it really did change that trajectory. And we are now getting back on track with the very process that they have done for a lot longer than we have. Joe Wilson, the director of Hospitality House in San Francisco, is looking at the street level to assess our level of coordination. Does getting into the system work? Is it straightforward to understand? Coordination is not the same as centralization. Uh, So we need to be clear on that. Tell me Um, more about what you mean. Well, there ought to be wherever people show up, they're in the right place. I think that's been part of our philosophy at Hospitality House since its founding. Wherever they come in, they're in the right place. So right now we have, I think, a handful of access points uh, for adults and youth and families. That is counterintuitive to what we want to have happen, meaning that wherever people are, they ought to be a few blocks away from a place, an organization, an entity that can get them started in making progress toward permanent housing. It takes a while to build that, but we have a large part of the foundation in place in our human services field. What does require everyone to have a clear acknowledgement on what it is we're doing, how we're doing it, and why. Do we have that now? No. I asked him what it would take to get there or to get to a situation like Houston has, where everyone's clear on what the goal is and how we're going to achieve it. One of the things he said would be necessary sounds awfully familiar to what Rausch from the Houston Coalition named as a first step, a giant mind meld where first, the needs are assessed. We'd have to have a series of what I would call woodshed meetings, where uh, people get serious and honest about what is happening and what isn't, get serious about the level of resources needed to move us closer to that, and where the resources need to be situated. I mean, what Alicia and Jesus described was almost, or at least initially, almost a daily battle with the bureaucracy to say, just let us do it. 
right? We don't need to send someone else to some other person or some other thing to get support, to get the help that they need. Let us do that. Give us the resources. We make them available for the individual because we've built the relationship and the trust. There were people within that same bureaucracy who did help move things along and get resources allocated, Wilson says. But he and his staff were having to conform to a system rather than the system conforming to clients' needs. One big barrier was documentation. Here's case manager Jesus Seja. You know, some of the immigrants that were homeless, it was very hard to get certain paperwork for them. You know, they've been here for years already, but it was very difficult for them to get their birth certificate from Mexico. We found a piece of paper with a copy of his old ID, and that worked. And I wrote a letter that, you know, he was in a shelter and it's very important for for him to be housed so it worked he was able to get his birth certificate from mexico which that led to an appointment to get his passport which that took about a good month but it was in hours of phone calls just kind of setting up appointments program manager alicia coleman dealt with the same for u.s citizens they wanted documentation and then it was like social security was that was the, was the worst part because it was like hello we're locked down they were like well you have to mail in the the drivers or the id half these folks don't have that they rely on you to get that information so a lot of those a lot of that processing was uh was very crazy another piece that we ran into was the coordinated entry system Most of the country uses some kind of coordinated entry system. It is what it sounds like. It's supposed to coordinate people's access to services by figuring out what their needs are. The idea is to prioritize those who are most vulnerable for housing. Some places use an off-the-shelf version. Houston uses that with a few tweaks. Others, like San Francisco, have created their own specific eligibility assessments. And those can spit out weird results sometimes. I just sometimes wonder if there's just like this big monster of a machine that's in the back and someone just goes and kicks it and bangs it and it starts running again. And then folks' information just pops up. But I didn't understand the scoring system, which totally eliminated some folks from even being qualified. We had a, a, re- a resident that was, she was 87. And she she did not um, utilize the system as much as the average person does to be considered that of mental health or any type of help. So when she went through her coordinated entry assessment, she scored really low, I think, which it didn't qualify her for anything housing-wise. So in the beginning, it was like, you know, well, she won't be housed through X, Y, or Z. And it's like, how? Like, where will she go from here? The head of the city department that runs our homelessness system acknowledges that has some technical problems. Shireen McSpadden says that case of the 87-year-old woman being found ineligible shouldn't happen and that the city's working on it. So I think we have a lot of challenges with with that system. And one of the things that we've done in the last year is really lower the documentation requirements. So as we were moving people out of the shelter-in-place hotels and into permanent housing and other housing solutions, we really saw that being a barrier to them moving out quickly. And of course, we were hit with, you know, some real deadlines. We we have to close a lot of these hotels and hand them back to the owners. With the coordinated entry system, we agree that it's got some challenges and that people don't really understand how it works. It seems not transparent. We just completed an evaluation of that system and are now doing some design sessions with the community to redesign coordinated entry so that it really works for people. 
Which leads us to the second part of Houston's strategy. We chose in Houston for the lead agency not to be housed within the city or within the county. We'll get to that right after a break. Here's another aspect of Houston's approach. Minimizing bureaucracy and government involvement by having a non-government agency take over the coordination. And making sure that the plan is not a government decree. We always say, this is, this is the plan for the city. But this isn't the city's plan or the mayor's plan. It's the community's plan that so happens to be the city's and to be the county's plan as well. In Houston, as you've heard, that coordinating non-government group was the Coalition for the Homeless. Anna Rausch, a vice president there, says before the shift, getting someone into services was tricky. It was very convoluted on how to get someone um, some any kind of housing assistance. There was a lot of duplication of services and too much of one service that wasn't good enough for everyone that needed it and not enough of what those individuals needed the most. So those individuals were left homeless, the most vulnerable. And so the coordination that we do is about not duplicating the same thing. So when you're talking about coordinating multiple people, data-driven is something that we're very, very good at as well. This is Mark Eichenbaum again. He's special assistant to the mayor of Houston for homeless initiatives. We chose in Houston for the lead agency not to be housed within the city or within the county because we wanted everybody at that table. And if it was being strictly run by the city or county, I think, you know, service providers and advocates would rightfully question, what do government bureaucrats know about policies and about helping individuals who are homeless? So we said, we want to cast this net as wide as possible. We want an independent agency that's out there. And, uh, and that's when the coalition comes in to be that coordinator, to be that air traffic controller. San Francisco, and maybe this applies to California generally, has a distinctly different attitude from Texas about the role of government. I relate Eichenbaum's comments about skepticism that bureaucrats could make good policy to Shireen McSpadden, the director of the city's Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. And I disagree with that. I think good homelessness policy is happens because people come together to create it together. I think that you have to center the experiences of black and brown people and queer people, because those are the people most affected by it. But I actually, I do think it's government's role to create good policy, and I think that we can. But they do agree on seeking community input. And the two cities also align on what I see as the third part of Houston's strategy. It's called a housing-first model. The basic gist is, wherever possible, get people into housing before all else. Mark Eichenbaum from the Houston mayor's office explains what that means. Typically, we would say, oh, we have a place for you to go. But it comes with all these strings attached, or to what people call barriers. And to somebody on the streets, if you say, well, I can't smoke, forget that. I'll just stay on the streets. Or I can't do X, Y, and Z. Or I got to be in by 4 o'clock in the afternoon. We were saying, hey, we get it. If you are paying for somebody's housing, you know, the least you can do is have a couple rules. But the reality is those rules were acting as barriers. And that's why we had so many people on our streets for decades in the greater Houston area. Now, the very first thing, let's get somebody in a safe and stable location, and then we're going to provide them voluntary support services. And what we have found is that when you make it voluntary, actually more people partake in them and they end up being more effective and successful. We're not doing this because, you know, we think it's the right thing to do. We're doing this because it's what's the most successful thing to do. 
Houston's unified vision and plan was focused on one specific thing, taking chronically homeless people off the streets and putting them into housing. That is not the same thing as saying we want there to be no more homeless people. Sometimes people are only homeless briefly, couch surfing or living in their car before they bounce back into a more stable housing situation. Sometimes, like in San Francisco, visible homelessness is reduced because more emergency shelters open up to put people into temporarily. Often, people are funneled from the street into transitional housing, a stepping stone between the street and an apartment. Houston's plan meant fixating on finding people on the street permanent placements. Eichenbaum lays out what permanent housing does and doesn't mean. You know, there's a couple fallacies out there. One is, is everybody just gets, you know, long-term housing. And that's, you know, everybody gets housing for life. And that's not true. Folks, uh, the housing intervention is tailored to the specific needs and issues of each individual person. The second thing is that, you know, we're just taking somebody off the streets and, and throwing them into a housing unit. And that's really unfair to them. And it's unfair to the rest of the people that might be living around that person. The reality is we are housing every single person with wraparound supportive services. We will never house a person without the support services. The support services is what keeps the person housed. And as we discuss, the housing is what makes the support services effective. So like permanent housing, what's permanent about it is that the person actually gets a lease. San Francisco is cognizant of barriers to shelter and housing as well. That's part of why we've had navigation centers for several years. Shelters with fewer barriers to entry, where people can bring their pets, partners, and belongings. And the city also focuses a huge chunk of its energy and money on permanent placements, especially housing with services attached. But here's a crucial difference between San Francisco and Houston. The cost of housing. Listen to Anna Rausch from the Houston Coalition for the Homeless describe signing up private landlords to rent to people living in an encampment. We implemented a landlord engagement process that came along with that, that we learned after the hurricane worked very well. We have a team that goes out and recruits landlords. And we even had landlords that came and set up, we had a table set up for them under the bridge at the encampment. And there were landlords there signing people up for their units at the location. It was amazing to see. So I have to ask this now. I mean, just the image of landlords signing up at an encampment to house folks off the street. To what extent is Houston's ability to put someone in an apartment determined by the housing market? So we have been very lucky in Houston up until, you know, I would say this year or at the end of last year, and that we have had a very affordable housing market. We were always able to find landlords. They weren't like, you know, $2,000 fancy apartment complexes, but definitely, you know, um, decent, affordable housing apartments that would, you know, maybe the rent was about six or $700 for a one bedroom back then when we were doing it in 2018. Oh, yeah. Not the world that we live in here. <laughs> yeah. If you are a landlord and you have a unit available, you you sign an agreement with us that says that you're willing to, you know, uh, waive your deposit requirements. You're willing to reduce the restrictions on criminal backgrounds and credit checks and income um, with the understanding that these individuals are going to be housing your unit. They're going to be getting subsidy and they're going to be getting case management. So they come to an orientation, all of that is explained, and then for every unit that we lease up with them, they get $1,600 and they get to keep that money. We did that after um, Hurricane Harvey. It was very successful. And so we've just been incorporating it now. Just to be clear, that $1,600 is a one-time incentive fee, not the monthly rent. And I, I think it's one of the main reasons why we've been so successful in recruiting landlords. But 
we have housed, you know, over 5,000 people in, in two years. And so that's a lot of market rate units that we've used up in our city. And so we used to have more vacancy. Now the vacancy is shrinking. And then, of course, because we filled, we actually were filling some of these properties that were had some vacancies they've become more attractive to investors. And so a lot of our apartment complexes here in Houston have actually sold to investors that have come in and bought them because now the vacancy is non-existent. And so it's now more of a challenge. We're having to onboard new landlords while also retaining the existing landlords and trying to keep up with that has been really, really hard. And it's brand new for us because we've never thankfully had this issue. San Francisco actually does work with private landlords to house people who have become homeless. The city works with organizations that scout for available units. Shireen McSpadden from the Homelessness Department says they've just created a new rapid rehousing team that's also looking for units that could work. Here's another thing both cities have in common. The coronavirus pandemic, devastating as it is, also presented an opportunity. This is Anna Rausch with the Houston Coalition for the Homeless again. When COVID happened, we, of course, the pandemic was new to everyone. But once we saw the amount of funding that was going to come in to all of the different cities for the, the CARES funding, and then after that, the ARPA funding, we just realized this is really an unprecedented opportunity to make a huge dent in our homeless numbers. We were just meeting the needs, meeting the people that are coming or falling into homelessness and then keeping the people that we housed housed. We just really needed something larger to get over that hump and really, really dig down into our homeless numbers. And that's what happened with COVID. For Alicia Coleman at Hospitality House in San Francisco, the onset of the pandemic was a little chaotic, but suddenly new resources became available. We all winged it until we figured it all out because no one had been in this experience. We had folks who hadn't been inside in over 20 years that are now back inside again. So everybody had to figure this out. I had never run a hotel setting before, especially to that capacity. My my workload had tripled in, in that time. That whole piece was like a blessing and a curse because the blessing in it was that it provided a huge opportunity. Coleman saw the message from the city change, with more emphasis placed on getting people housed. Well, you know, working in the shelter was supposed to have adequate housing, prepare for folks that are ready to move into adequate housing. So now they're like, oh, we have adequate, like you do? The city and county, it's like, you know, we have to get all these people housed. Shireen McSpadden, the head of the city's homelessness department, described the pandemic in mixed terms, too. On one hand, it derailed the city's work on a unified, coordinated plan to address homelessness. On the other it allowed the city to consider new approaches. We had to really think differently. We had to think about getting people off the street and into safe spaces and out of congregate shelters and into safe housing. And so that was really different from what we were thinking before, which was like, we have a different set of circumstances where, you know, we are trying to bring these, all of these resources together. We're trying to think about how we build a safe shelter system and how it flows into the permanent supportive housing system. And it was only that. And once COVID hit, we really had to just say, okay, it's all hands on deck to get everybody off the street, especially those who are most at risk of COVID. But at the same time, the last few years have been a time of unprecedented resource allocation for the system. The mayor announced a plan to create 1,500 new permanent supportive housing placements. McSpadden says the city's actually created 3,000. 
And there are more resources for homelessness prevention, including legal and rental assistance. She says that's made the system overall more responsive to people's needs. As for what it's going to take to craft San Francisco's version of Houston's unified, clear vision and plan. So we're kind of smack in the middle of our strategic plan. The first part of that plan had to go to the state for review. A local advisory committee gets to weigh in as well. It has people from the department as well as community organizations. And the department gets feedback on its planning process from people who have been homeless. And that should yield us some really good and very clear goals that we can work on together. So we are hoping to have that completed by the end of December, but it's a big lift. And, you know, I think I want to get it right more than I want it to be delivered exactly on time. But we will be publishing that and we will then be holding ourselves accountable to that plan over the next couple of years. I asked the two homelessness leaders from Houston what advice they have for cities like San Francisco. This is mayoral advisor Mark Eichenbaum's tip. Too often, uh, when one elected official is the, you know, standard bearer for a policy issue, when the predecessor comes in, sometimes they don't keep it going because they want to put their own stamp. What we've had here is is that we have a really self-sufficient system that can keep on going, but that needed political support. And this is what Anna Rausch from the Houston Coalition for the Homeless says. Don't duplicate efforts. Make sure you look at your data, use your data uh, wisely, look at the, the data in your homeless management information system and what the needs of the community are telling you. It's really easy to fall to pressure on responding to an immediate crisis. But then, you know, you get down one year down the line and you're going to have to fix that issue. You're going to have to address that. So really, it's just talk to each other. It seems that's exactly what San Francisco's working on doing. We'll keep an eye out for its master plan coming at the end of the year. And meanwhile, we want to hear from you. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, exploring how the city will shape its future and tackle its biggest problems. If you have a solution you'd like us to cover, or you know about a city that's doing something right, get in touch. Shoot us an email at sfnext at sfchronicle.com, or find us on Twitter. We're at sfnext. Find interactive data breakdowns, articles from our reporters, and our podcast archive at sfchronicle.com sfnext. I'm Laura Wenis. Next time on Fixing Our City, Paul Henderson has been detained and arrested eight times. That's not a weird coincidence, he says. It was racism. These days, he heads up the city's Department of Police Accountability. We'll see you next week. Cynthia Lopez produces and reports for Fixing Our City. Gary Baca is our sound engineer. King Kaufman is the executive producer. Jonathan Krim is the SF Next Project editor. 